Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Hello, everyone. Today is June 19th, 2015. Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. I'm Tiffany. Hello. I'm going to be your host today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the world are our co-hosts, Jonathan, Doug, and Erica. Dr. Gabby, unfortunately, she's away today, but she's here in spirit. So we have a great show planned for you today. The topic is tobacco. Is it the evil scores that Big Pharma the government, the media, and millions of people all over the world make it out to be, or is there more to it? So to help us sort through all of this, we have a very special guest in our studio all the way from the U.K. His name is Richard White. He's the author of the very well-researched book, Smoke Screens, The Truth About Tobacco. The book has its basis in years of research examining studies on smoking, what researchers have to say, the scientists involved in the anti-smoking movement, previous attacks on smoking, the origins of the anti-smoking movement, and the diseases said to be caused by smoking. Richard White has a degree in theology with qualifications in both psychology and sociology. He spent a number of years researching topics related to health and fitness, and he's worked as a freelance writer and editor. Now he currently works in public relations. Richard's website is smokescreens.org. The book, Smoke Screens, The Truth About Tobacco, can be purchased on Amazon.com. It's a very enlightening read for smokers and non-smokers alike. We are taking calls today, so if you'd like to call in, you can do so by dialing 718-508-9499. Richard White, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. So, let's just get into it. Um, we've all read lots and lots of books on topics of diet and health by some very knowledgeable and sharp researchers and medical professionals. But I've noticed that the vast majority of them still toe the mainstream line when it comes to tobacco uh, and smoking. So they seem really on the cutting edge when writing about diet and health, but they don't employ that same critical eye and quest for truth when it comes to smoking. But you seem to have pushed past that block. How did that happen, and can you, like, let us in on what led you to delve a little deeper in the whole smoking and tobacco issue and not just take it at face value? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the first thing I should say is that I, I previously did take it at face value. So I had the same opinions and beliefs about smoking that I, I think the vast majority of people have today. You know, the, all, the, all the statistics about you're going to get cancer from it and premature death. Where it changed for me was I was in the process of just doing some research on on cancer at the time, which when you're reading about cancer, you inevitably get to smoking. And it was during that time I found an online book called In Defense of Smokers. And that was the first the first thing I'd read where it wasn't just someone's opinion about it either. He had, he had taken, uh, it was a guy called Lauren Colby wrote this book. And he had looked at the Surgeon General's reports and um, all these other reports and, and explained it in a new way about how the statistics weren't quite what... If, if you read the statistics, they weren't quite the same as what we were told they were, or mm -hmm. there was flawed methodologies in the studies. Mm -hmm. That really just 
set me on a new path of finding out more about that. Okay. So I want to make this clear that this book isn't just your opinion. You have about 332 references in your book, and you're looking at mainstream studies throughout. Yeah, I, I, I guess if you're doing something um, that's taking this point of view in it, it it, I, I think it has to be as um, bulletproof as, as possible. All right. So um, is there anything that you looked at, like, that you can remember in particular that kind of pinged your bullshit radar? Was there one thing that said, mm-hmm. okay, this is wrong? <laughs> um, I, I don't know if I had one specific moment with it, but um, it, I certainly had the opinion that, when I started to read read these new new things, it registered with me that actually there's definitely some doubt about what I previously thought. You think things like the black lung, where I um, once upon a time I, I believed that, and I'd look at smokers and think, oh, you know, what do your lungs look like? Mm-hmm. Fully believing that they would look like a lump of coal. Actually, they probably don't. It's, it got me thinking. Yeah, how would they look like that and still function and people still be walking around breathing? Yeah, so can we start with the black lung myth? Because we've all seen those pictures too. You know, they show the picture of the black and you know, decrepit looking lung and they say that this is what yeah. happens with smokers' lungs. So can you get a little bit deeper into how that that study came about? Yeah, I think the earliest that I could trace it was um, a guy called Ernst Winder. And he was, uh, at the time, he was a young medical student who, during an autopsy, noticed that the lungs were blackened. And uh, the the uh, deceased happened to be a smoker and he couldn't find any evidence of um, pollution or any other factors that would um, physically cause this to happen. So he kind of ran with it that, Smoking must be the reason, and and so it began, really. But uh, we we know now, actually, that um, in some instances, the disease itself will blacken the lungs or blacken the organ that's diseased. Um, and kind of moving forward, we know that um, where they've done previous scare tactics with the lungs, but they tell us it's human lungs. Sometimes they've used pig, pig lungs that have been staying black to hammer the point home. Previous campaigns, they used coal miners' lungs, which had gone black inside from all the coal, but they were using them as smokers' lungs. So they they had to be pulled for um, not being true. Uh, and then you, what you notice now, if you if you look at it, when you see a textbook or, or an online picture these days of comparing a smoker's lung and a non-smoker's lung, I think everyone I've ever seen has a healthy non-smoker's lung, which is nice and pink and a disease I don't think I've seen one that honestly claims to have a healthy smoker's lung and a healthy non-smoker's lung. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. probably look the same. So, so they're comparing a cancerous lung to a, a non-cancerous lung and attributing the cancerous-looking lung to the smokers. Yeah, so for all intents and purposes, it's it's true. So I suppose you can be dishonest and tell the truth at the same time uh, because what they're doing is implying something. So you think, oh, the smoking did it. Actually, they happen to be a smoker that also happened to have this, this disease that causes it. And this is something that actually uh, I quote in the book from 
from a pathologist because I thought actually these are the people that see this day in and day out. And since since I published the book, I've seen more and more quotes from pathologists who say, on the table, you can't tell any difference. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw one great quote that unless someone had a pack of cigarettes in their pocket when they're on the table, you'd never know. Hmm. Well, that's just sounds like straight trickery to me. Um, yeah, yeah. Can we get into uh, some of the chemicals that are found in cigarettes, including tar? Because that's the substance that gets blamed a lot when people refer to black lung. And in your yeah. book, you go into how tar is not actually tar, and it was actually used in quotations before, and it's really not the same thing as tar found on roads. Yeah, I mean, this was something when I was in school, we we were told that they add tar to, to cigarettes, real tar. And uh, it's something you believe at face value. And then again, one of those moments for me when I realized that actually it doesn't really make sense was if you look at what tar is, you you couldn't breathe if you had this stuff in your lungs. Mm-hmm. And if it was if it was collecting in your lungs, it would also be in your mouth. You you, you would know it was there. You um you'd look at a smoker and you would see black tar coming out of their mouth. They'd be coughing it up. And the truth mm-hmm. is, you would never be a smoker that lived to eighty or ninety years old, as so many do, mm-hmm. because you you wouldn't be able to breathe. You just asphyxiate. Not many years after you start smoking, I'd imagine. <laughs> Yeah, so you'd see it on their teeth. They'd be coughing it up, and they'd probably drop dead after a few years. Yeah, I mean, if you look back, um, you know, through history, when people would be tarred and feathered, there was a reason they were tarred, and it was so, you know the skin couldn't breathe, and it, it's this horrible substance that doesn't really come off. I mean, if that gets in your lungs, it probably stays in your lungs, and it probably sets in your lungs, and there's no way air is going to be able to pass through. Mm-hmm. So, what are some of the other chemicals in cigarettes? Because these these researchers they have to claim that there's something in cigarette smoke or tobacco that causes cancer. Yeah, and it's it's not um, it's not untrue that there are things in in cigarette smoke and tobacco smoke that have been linked to illness, you know, cancer or, or so on. But um, the big thing really is how much is in there. Yeah. So I think the first important point to consider is that there's no, there's nothing added to cigarettes that isn't approved for human consumption. So whether it's in, in the fertilizer that we grow foods in or whether it's in additives, there's nothing in there that we aren't consuming elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are some that actually are naturally created from the combustion. Which again, if you stand by a bonfire, you have a barbecue, anything that has smoke, you're exposed to exactly the same chemicals, and actually in in far greater quantities. So while it's true to say that there's formaldehyde in smoke, you're exposed to much more formaldehyde elsewhere. But it comes back to that thing of telling the truth but being dishonest. So you can make the claim that there's this particular substance in the smoke, and it's true, so you're leading someone to believe that because it's there, it's there in enough quantities to be seriously harmful. Um, but actually, you're making that up. You're making that connection yourself. So uh, I think actually a particularly good one is I've seen on on fire stations banners that say if you breathe in 
three lungfuls of smoke in a, in a burning building, you'll pass out. And I don't think you can smoke enough cigarettes to get enough smoke in your lungs to pass out. <laughs> yeah, one one thing it's I somebody... found interesting is the uh, comparison to um, to car exhaust. That uh, if anybody, you know, nobody right. really seems to think twice about standing next to a car that's idling. But, you know, you're getting much more of those harmful chemicals from that car exhaust than you would standing next to a smoker or even, in, in, like, next to a smoker in a closed room. Yeah, I mean, if you if you think that one of the – a popular way of committing suicide is running a, a hose pipe uh, from, you know, your exhaust into your window and, and asphyxiating yourself. You, right. You could sit in that same room with 100 smokers and you'd be out. Yeah. So it sounds like there's lots of chemicals in the environment, like air pollution from cars, pesticides, household cleaning items, plastic, glyphosate, um, benzene and water. All those things are found in the environment, but uh, researchers and scientists and doctors and all those people blame smoking. But it sounds like those things are found in cigarettes in such small amounts, it doesn't even compare to what's found in everyday life. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And then, um, I mean, it, it, the quantities are are tiny. Um, and I, I, go, I go into it, but I've got a chapter on the chemicals with, with the amounts. Um, but they, they're, they're, they're just really tiny. Yeah, certainly that you you would get them in bigger quantities elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And some I've heard the argument that oh, it's different because you're inhaling them, so you're not eating it, and it's going into your stomach, which is more able to deal with it. But that's not entirely true. I mean, there there are plenty of the same chemicals, things like formaldehyde, where you are inhaling it mm-hmm. in higher quantities, and not just in higher quantities, but it, in higher quantities in a shorter space of time. Mm-hmm. So if you're physically in a room with a concentration level that exceeds that of a whole pack of cigarettes, you'll be breathing that in more continuously than smoking that pack of cigarettes. That might take you a day, it might take you two days, it might take you a morning, you know, it depends who you are, but um, you'll, be, you'll be consuming cigarettes normally much slower than you'd be breathing in the chemicals in, in your surroundings. Mm-hmm. So can we get into some of the smoking and tobacco studies? Your book goes into a lot of details and really, really decimate and debunk a lot of these studies. Are there any of them that stand out for you? Like for me in particular is the the fact that uh, scientists have not really been successful in inducing lung cancer in lab animals. Yeah, and um, actually, that you can that goes back to the talk that you mentioned because um, you're completely correct that as the scientists of uh, no, I won't call them scientists. Actually, I mean, <laughs> the research studies they um, they study the, the tar causes the cancer. Fine. So a couple of the studies they did involved um, extracting what what would be considered the tar from the smoke. And so one of them, you know, they, they painted it on to, to naked mice or um, I think one of them, they they put um, some of the filters inside some of the roads. Um, nothing that had any, any consequence. And then you think, well, actually, even if it did, 
but we change things that much. So if you, you apply quite a concentrated dosage of this thing as a physical substance onto a small mammal many, many times smaller than us, <laughs> we would be consuming that as slightly you know, completely different. Um, but the animal studies I, I, I found that completely fascinating that they've never really managed to prove what they set out to prove. And there was one study where they, they did have dogs that some of them contracted cancer in higher numbers than the non-smoking groups, but they never replicated that. And years, years later on, I mean, quite recently, actually, in the, it was accepted in court that the animal studies have always failed in this matter. So if it wasn't successful as an anomaly, there was certainly plenty wrong with it, as I explained in my book. I mean, the numbers of smoking dogs compared to non-smoking dogs was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there were something like eight non-smoking dogs, but they had, I, I think off the top of my head, somewhere around 70-something smoking-exposed dogs. Um, and obviously, they weren't just given cigarettes and told to smoke at their own leisure moves, their dogs. So they had triathletes and they were forced to smoke. And whenever animals are exposed to it, it's completely unrealistic um, dosage. Um, in fact, I was uh, one of the ones I thought was particularly interesting was um, they did it with um, with rats. Mm-hmm. So they've got these genetically modified rats that are um, essentially predisposed to contract cancer. Various parts of their body and um, a consistent thing with the animal studies is that the smoking exposed ones often are healthier than the non-smoking controlled uh, control animals. Huh. So in this particular study, they um, the exposure animals not only lived longer than the non-smoking animals, but they lived longer than their own life expectancy. Mm-hmm. So where there was where their life expectancy was um, twenty four months, they went on for thirty months, and they were they were called the low exposure group. So they had uh, a no exposure group, a low exposure, and a high exposure. The high exposure group were exposed to so much smoke that some of them physically asphyxiated and died. Mm-hmm. Um, but the low exposure group, and it's kind of a quote unquote low exposure because it was the equivalent of. 10 cigarettes every five minutes uh, in a one cubic meter box, six hours a day, five days a week for 30 months. Um, and they they performed better than the non-smoking rats, who, again, bearing in mind, this is a group of animals that were um, predisposed to, to contracting cancer and dying early. Mm-hmm. So does that mean that the uh, the smoking actually has a protective effect? Yeah, I think there's. Um, I suppose it depends, you know, on on what. But um, there's a lot of evidence to show that there are protective benefits of smoking. And in fact, the animal studies again have demonstrated this. So time and time again, we've seen in the rodents that they have um, improved cognitive abilities. That maybe you know they're physically um, at a healthier weight, they live longer or they, they contract less disease. Um, but there was a particularly interesting study with dogs where they were exposed to radiation and 100% of these dogs 
died of lung cancer. Mm -hmm. Mm. And then they had an accidental... I get confused, sorry, there were two. There there was... I think they did a similar one with mice where there was an accidental crossover. I think with the dogs it might be more deliberate, but the upshot is some of the dogs were exposed to tobacco smoke and they were the only group that had a reduced incidence of lung cancer. So whereas 100% of the non-smoke exposed ones contracted the disease, there were some smoke exposed ones that didn't. Hmm. Wow. Well, that's very interesting considering Fukushima and all the uh, the nuclear testing that's been going on all over the world since yeah. for decades. For sure, yeah. And I mean, it's something that... Um, as far as with humans go, where there have been various studies that have said we found a protective benefit. Um, so when you look at when when you hear about the smoke uh, lung cancer rates of smokers and non-smokers, that's kind of whatever we're told. What you know, how whatever they're using to to for that basis. If you look at specific studies that do this, actually, there's numerous ones have said that the smokers have had reduced incidence of whether it's cancer or heart disease or whatever. And what they've said, the, a, a kind of um, universal consensus, if you like, between these studies, is that they say um, there's a protective effect on the basis that actually the smoke encourages this mucus production, which mm-hmm. acts as a protective barrier in the lungs. Now, that's not something that I've really try to prove or disprove but I, I find it an interesting concept certainly and I think that there's it is somewhat validated by studies like with the dogs because it, it goes some way to suggesting what the physical you know, what the mechanics are mm-hmm. for how that could be which mm. oddly enough has never been has never happened with the anti-smokers to this day they've never said this is the physical biological mechanism by which smoking causes cancer. Mm-hmm. They've never been able mm-hmm. to do that. With all the readings of animal studies, with with um, lab research, with the human research they've done, it's always been either statistical with humans, which kind of backfires in its own way, and the physical research of the animals completely contradicts what they're trying to say. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's why I found it such an interesting topic, was because when you delve into it, it's not nearly as comprehensive as you'd be led to believe. So they can't uh, pinpoint the exact mechanism of how cigarette smoking leads to cancer, but on the other side, there's a mechanism of mucus production, which kind of forms a coating in your lungs and prevents particulate matter from making its way into the lungs to actually cause some kind of damage or cancer. Yeah, that's the that's the theory. I mean, I mm-hmm. I certainly wouldn't like to say that's that's definitely true. Uh, it's something that's been said and and lends itself to some of the results certainly. Uh, and I think you know smokers, I, I guess most smokers could attest to the extra mucus production. We we all know what a smoker's cough is, mm-hmm. um, which is you know kind of physical evidence of that extra mucus production. So the next step would be that. If it acts as a barrier, maybe that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, I think it's um, you know at least there's a theory there for something. Whereas um, on the other side, we don't really have too much. Okay, so can we get into some of some of the human studies? Um, 
I know a lot of the studies that are conducted by these so-called uh, scientists are uh, where they're looking back in the past and having people report on smoking for themselves or one of their family members. And yeah. then in your book, you also tie it to socioeconomic class and smoking. Can you go a little bit into that? Yeah, the, the socioeconomics, uh, I mean, this is something that's not just related to smoking. I mean, mm -hmm. this has been on a whole range of things from suicide and depression to drinking more, um, general life expectancy being reduced. So, you know, it's not something that is, is um, either unique to smoking or that I've really had to try and make a leap of faith to get. I mean, this is something that's very, very well established that to be quite crude about it, richer people live longer and are healthier, poorer people don't. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, as far as the relation to smoking goes, it's kind of an overall thing. And what I actually found in researching and writing the book was the more the more I got into that particular topic, the more evidence there was for it. So it ties in with a whole range of things, including that one of the ways you could the statistics could be skewed. Mm -hmm. Example is that it's probably fair to say that on average, non-smokers care more, pay more attention to their health than smokers, because smokers are assuming this risk and that you know they're accepting it and they're gambling with it. Um, Whereas non-smokers might often think, actually, no, I don't want to take that risk. Mm -hmm. So on the whole, it's probably a fair statement. So on the social economic side of it, yeah, I mean, for decades and decades, there, there's been research into this that they can't necessarily afford the best diets. They, they tend to be more stressed, have more money worries. Um, in countries like America, more so than in the UK, where we've got socialized medicine, but, you know, it's not, if you can't afford the healthcare, you might not be able to afford the doctor's appointments or the medicine, you avoid it. Um, more manual work, which has more is more taxing on, on you physically. Um, all these things. So when you look back on it from a research point of view, you can see clear clear disadvantages, including increased smoking rates, increased drinking rates, um, increased depression and suicide, general ill health and, and lower life expectancy. So it's quite a, a whole picture, if you like. Mm -hmm. And yet smoking gets blamed when there's all these other factors that play into it. Yeah, I mean, as far as smoking getting blamed, it's, I, when I did the book, you know, um, five, six years ago now, I mentioned at the time that, oh, smoking's now being blamed for blindness and acne. And, and I wondered where <laughs> it could get more ridiculous than that. And then a couple of weeks ago, I saw a picture where it was being blamed for back pain. Oh, huh. uh, it's just oh a bit like, what more can they do? I mean, you you can whether you agree with it or not, you know, believe it or not, that the the whole lung disease idea, you can at least accept that it's an obvious connection. You inhale smoke into the lungs, and you have you have lung health problems. Okay, that's believable. Yeah, back pain and things. I think it's 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 um it's beyond tenuous now. That's quite a stretch. Yeah, yeah. To put it nicely, yeah. 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 When your it's book, kind of you also talked about. Where... Oh, well, you also talked about in your book something called detection bias. Yeah. Um, can you explain what that is? 
Detection bias basically is um, there being a tendency to find or to look for or diagnose something like lung cancer in people you'd expect to have it, so smokers. So you, you, if you go to the doctor as a smoker and you say, oh, I've got this cough, they'd be more likely to look for or diagnose lung cancer than if you're a non-smoker. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, when you first talk about this as a, as a concept, it might sound a bit far-fetched, but this again, this is something that I, I had a study in the book from the 50s and they, it's been um, found again in the 70s and the 80s. And not only was it that you're more likely to be diagnosed in it, Mm-hmm. But he also found um, false and negative positives. So when someone had this diagnosis in life, when they later had a post-mortem done, they would say, oh, you know, this, this guy was diagnosed with it, but he doesn't actually have it. Or this mm-hmm. person wasn't diagnosed with it, but they do have it. So the the rate that you're given when someone's alive, which is the kind of things we see on the news, X amount of smokers are diagnosed with lung cancer, well, actually, they might not all have even had it, or the number of non-smokers that do have it is higher than we, we're led to believe. Or or not even led to believe, actually, that that's probably unfair. It's that are known about, mm-hmm. because there's just reluctance to look for it. Um, and it's even, um, they've even said, one of, the, one of the studies that I mentioned in the book concluded that detection bias led to a falsely low estimate of incidence rates in women. Because, you know, for years, the, the statistics showed that men smoked more than women um, and smoked, and they consumed more cigarettes than women. So, you know, a, a greater number of men smoked than women and those that smoked tended to smoke more tobacco. Mm-hmm. So they were therefore more likely to be diagnosed with the disease. But actually, when the women were cut open on the table, they had the disease as well. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, it's, it's gotten to the point where I have, I have a friend who is a, a smoker, and she tells me that when, she has never told her doctor that she smokes and actually denies it, simply because anything that she says or goes in and complains about um, will be blamed on the smoking if she tells him that, that that she does. Whereas if she doesn't, then it means that they might actually, you know, investigate a little bit more and actually look for for other possible reasons behind it. Yeah, it's as if knowing that you're a smoker gives them the right to just give up and stop looking any further than yeah. than what you they, say. They, they, yeah, they just tell you to quit smoking to solve it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think actually the really serious thing about this, and what I think it really sums up the um, the inherent, um, you know, I, I suppose evil of the of the anti-smoking movement is that. People are really being let down, you know, with with their health. I mean, um, potentially fatally. So you go to a doctor with something and you've got this real problem. Well, as you said, if they admit to smoking, that that's where it begins and where it ends for the doctor. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, they they may well have a lot or something serious wrong with them that it just isn't being diagnosed or isn't being taken seriously because because of where they are. But then what makes it worse is you hear that some doctors are saying. Some of them get paid extra, you know, like a bonus for getting people to stop smoking, or uh, um, you know, basically again, they're getting the handouts from whoever, you know, whatever companies they're working with, pharmaceutical companies, for instance. So actually, it it kind of just turns the smokers into into a pawn in the game, mm. and and it's their life that's losing, really. Yeah, and. Uh... 
working in with doctors closely and looking at the, the the visit sheets where they conduct their visits with their patients and they're writing in there in big caps with exclamation marks, uh, instructed patient to stop smoking, and then that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, uh, and why? when did medical school become that? Mm-hmm. I mean, you used to go to the doctor and you'd see a doctor, and now you're just being lectured on your lifestyle choices. Well, I mean, the the big thing as well is, there's not a single illness, disease, or affliction that only smokers get. Mm-hmm. So I think firstly that's a point that really needs to be hammered home because all this talk about smoking-related disease, okay, you could argue that maybe smokers have a higher incidence of some of these diseases, but they're not exclusive to smokers. Mm-hmm. So if you go back to that point about the doctors, even if you go and you you know you go as a smoker. Well, it doesn't mean, firstly, that you wouldn't have had that disease if you weren't smoking. And it also doesn't mean that you're not deserving of treatment. Right. You know, especially with the amount of tax that smokers pay now, um, and then I suppose you've got the higher price of basically being victimised in, in society for the uh, inconvenience of smoking. You know, you pay the high tax, you smoke outside, you're not allowed indoors, you're getting pushed away from, from buildings, so you can't smoke within certain amount of feet from the door and then you go to the doctor because you're not feeling well and, and you get told off mm-hmm. and all because, because you may have something that you you certainly uh, may also get as a non-smoker anyway mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so can we get into uh, some of these anti-tobacco crusaders you go into that in your book and you go a little bit into the history of smoking bans um, yeah. There's a good article on our SOP page called Let's All Light Up, where the author, Laura Knight Yadjik, goes into the history of smoking bans. And the first one was actually in Mexico in the 1500s. And this is before there was even any so-called science to back up any claims that smoking led to any disease. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I think that... Um Generally speaking, I think that you, throughout history, some people were being, you know, not happy around smoke. Um, and again, I, I think it's easy to understand why. I mean, it's not always pleasant or um, whatever. So I think generally, yeah, I think it's no more than that. Some people have, have just generally disliked it. And then we also have the undeniable fact that some people just love power and controlling people. So if you where you can do that and you can control people by saying, actually, you can't do that anymore. That's what they'll do. I mean, but it's been brutal. I mean, um, there have been bands where um, uh, smokers have been, I think, beheaded for, for a <laughs> warning. So I suppose, really, we, we could stop moaning so much these days that you have to go outside. But um, <laughs> it, um, it was pretty nasty, yeah. But the, the the thing that's been interesting about it though is they've always been cyclical. So they a band would come and then a band would go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whether there's any comfort for today in that that this one will also pass and um, I don't know. The big difference these days, of course, is that there's there's real influence and there's real money now. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the bands have been and the, there's also been bands in the same place there are now. So you know, America's had its own bands. Um, I remember one example I put in the book was a woman who was told by the police that you can't light up 
on, on this, I think it's Fifth Avenue. Um, but they come and go. You know, mm-hmm. but I don't, as for the motivations, I, I think it certainly wasn't um, health-based, except for King James. King, King James did think that it, it caused soot on the brain and the lungs. and um, <laughs> So I think maybe in some scenarios there was, you know, probably genuine concern or fear of health, but they, they probably hadn't validated it. Um, but that's just, you've always had these examples of Puritans throughout history. Yes, if you look at prohibition, um, and the really interesting thing about prohibition was you can kind of see the blueprint in that for smoking. So they had secondhand alcohol at the time. Secondhand alcohol? Yeah. So I suppose today you just consider that, you know, someone getting really drunk and, and being violent, but actually it was something like um, the fumes from, from if you've got this glass of whiskey and it's. Um, the fumes are going in and that's something else. All of a sudden, we've got secondhand smoke. So, there's always been in the cure. I imagine there always will be. Go ahead, Doug. Hmm. You had a question? Well, I just, it was kind of a comment. One thing that really struck me in the book is all the um, anti smoking advocates that you, uh, you kind of looked into. Um, how kind of determined they are to just ban smoking, like they're not actually interested in the truth about it or in, you know, doing some studies to, to figure out if it actually is harmful or what those harms actually are. They just, they're, they're on a crusade. Um, they don't really um, look, uh, you know, they're, they're not interested in health overall. They're really just interested in banning smoking and that's it. I mean, the one that comes to mind is the guy, uh, Stanton uh, Gantz, was that his last name? Um, who, yeah, who gotcha. you know, is just... Yeah, they're they're just so diligent, and and yeah, they they just don't have any real interest in in you know um, the health of people. They only want to to ban smoking, which is kind of just like an inset bias right from the get go. Oh, for sure. And and the the really worrying thing though is these people are really high up. So um, I think you know when when you trace it back. Because sometimes it's hard to think of motivation for it, but actually I think a lot of these guys are driven by, you know, career-driven. So you've got people like, um, is, it, is it John Banson, if I can't pronounce his name, the fat guy who's now trying to sue McDonald's because that's another choice we shouldn't have. Uh, <laughs> you know, so that was a... And this was a whole new avenue for him. You know, we can sue the tobacco companies. And then you've got James Repace, who, who worked in the EPA... Um, I think he was there for the original report into secondhand smoke, which was which was debunked a thousand times. And yeah, you know, and you can talk to these guys. I mean, I've I've spoken to the, um, certainly James Repace, and he's absolutely insane. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> try and but I mean, this is the guy that said if you smoke in a room, it takes hurricane or tornado force winds to get rid of that smoke. Well, anyone knows you can just open the window. Um, <laughs> But they're they're on another planet, and you know Stanton in particular. I remember when when that film Avatar came out, and he said he seemed to think there was a cigarette in practically every scene. I think I've maybe seen one or two, um, <laughs> but I think his exact quote was just like someone dumped plutonium in in the water supply or something. I mean, it's it's just it's another planet of crazy, um, <laughs> but they're in unbelievable power, positions of power and authority. So he's he's with the university and. Um, you know, so they do 
in actually, if you find these new new studies, people always come out and say, "Oh, have you seen this new study?" Or they've just found this. And every time, it's someone like Stan behind it, and he's got huge amounts of grant money, and they get the money because the the conclusion's predetermined. So they say, "We'll give you half a million dollars if you can prove that smoking does this." So they go ahead and they prove smoking did it, and then someone posts it on Facebook, and then everyone shares it on Facebook. And suddenly it's this accepted fact, um, and I'm an idiot because I don't believe it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's just social media because what they used to do was um, they called it science by press release things. So they would uh, and stand this this Stanton glance. He, this was his big big tactic was he'd have this study which was you know just pure bullshit. Probably <laughs> <laughs> Well, they would publish it properly, but in advance they would release a press release to the to the journalists, which just had scary conclusion. And I kid you not, if there are studies this guy has done where you can read the results, and then the conclusion is the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Results found not harm or yeah, you know, it wasn't really statistically significant, and the conclusion is, oh my god, everyone's going to die. That then goes to the journalists, and journalists are really lazy. And if you if you read one story in multiple newspapers, you'll often see that actually they've just copy and pasted the press release. Mm-hmm. So they send out this really scary press release. It gets copied and pasted into quite a big newspapers that, you know, fair enough, we should really be able to trust with things like this. A week later, it gets properly published, and, you know, it turns out actually it's not quite what they said. But the, the papers won't put an apology or an update because it's not as interesting. Mm-hmm. If you've got a story that says smokers are really harming their babies because they're smoking, why? And then it turns out actually they're not. You know, there's one really obvious, interesting story there, and so that's what they did. Mm-hmm. And it, it, people, you know, the public don't really follow up the story. So you read that, that's your scary headline. You believe it, and that's how it spreads. And then all of a sudden, it's accepted wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what these guys did. So that was just one of their tactics. And you also mentioned uh, Richard Dahl in your book, and he's one of the anti-tobacco crusaders, but he got money from Monsanto and Dow Chemical and ICI, and uh, it seems like a lot of these crusaders or researchers in the anti-tobacco field are being paid by these big companies to do that. But on the other hand, you get the people on the other side who don't get any money. Like you yourself, for instance, you're not paid by any uh, pro-tobacco lobby or anything, right? Right, yeah, I, I get nothing. And, um, <laughs> but I think then the, the great irony of that, though, is the moment anyone comes out with the slightest support of not even the tobacco industry, you know, smoking, there's plenty of smokers who hate the tobacco industry because they've let them down or they put all this stuff in the cigarettes that they don't agree with or whatever. But you don't have to... a be a smoker or or support smokers' rights to like the tobacco industry. But the minute you say anything that slightly contradicts the hardest line of anti-smoking, they say you're in their pocket of big tobacco. And uh, I've had that accusation. I, I had an article published a few years ago in, in one of the papers here. Um, and, you know, straight away, I'm accused of being in their pay. Mm-hmm. Um, people like Richard Dole, I mean... I think actually, in fairness to him, I think when he when he first started, I think he he probably believed 
his results. I mean, he... Because the anti-smoking goes back further than that. So the, the Nazis did their research into the... For their, you know, they had their, their goal of a pure race. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that was they didn't, they didn't want smoking. So they had this obvious propaganda research. But in, in Richard Dole's early work, he referenced one of these studies. I think it was by, by um, a German called, called Miller. So I think actually there's probably an element of we can't use that research. That was conducted by the Nazis, but I'll kind of recreate it or whatever. So it was referenced in his first, first study or one of his first studies, and he did give up smoking you know, when he found the results of that. Um, but certainly as time went on, yeah, I mean, he was being paid um, something like $1,500 a, a day. Mm. But, um, mm. Yeah, that was my Santo paying him $1,500 a day in, in the 1980s. I mean, that's a huge sum of money. Um, and he was, this, this was an expose in The Guardian, which is a paper over here. I don't know if you guys are aware of that one, if you get that one. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so he was being paid by chemical companies for 20 years. He he argued that Agent Orange had didn't have any um, link to cancer. I mean, certainly, yeah, as you go into his career. But I mean, the 80s, I mean, that was 30 years after his, his first smoking study. So I wouldn't like to say that he, he began, you know, and it's, you know, dishonest or whatever, but I think he got there. Mm-hmm. Doug, you have another question? Well, just related to the to that, like, it's always like paid by these uh, these chemical companies to kind of prove that their um, their chemicals weren't actually harmful. And then at the same time, he's being paid to um, you know promote smoking as a cause for these things. I mean, it seems very related. Like, do you think that there was kind of an agenda there that it was like draw the attention away from these chemicals and 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 put the blame more on smoking? Yeah, I mean, what I found. I think I think with Dole, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, like I said, I'm not too convinced that it it was there in, from day one. But I think as mm. his career got going, I think there was there was obvious conflict there. Um, but I mean, at the time, there, there's a lot of of theories that I've I've kind of come across with smoking being used as a scapegoat. And I I think the reason I didn't talk too much about them in the book is because actually they're really hard to verify mm-hmm. um, and they can't all be true. I mean, one of them is that, um, as you kind of mentioned earlier, that the the nuclear testing, so, you know, smoking's been used mm-hmm. to cover, actually lung cancer increase has been a result of that. Smoking's been used. Uh, others have included pollution. I mean, if you if you think about London in the 50s, which is when Dole's research began, you you hear stories that people would hang the washing out and it'd be black from the pollution and the soot. And mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, going back to what we were discussing before about environmental pollution, I mean, you think of what people were breathing in just being outside. Um, you know, and following that on, I've I've seen people talking about um, that's why men had more incidence of lung cancer because they would have been outside more. This was a period of time where women were mostly indoors and men were outside working. So, you know, there's all sorts of theories on it. And, you know, unfortunately, I've not been able to verify or, or disprove any of them. So I kind of, I keep them all at arm's length. But, um, Do you have yeah, any more you'd like to share? It's very interesting. Yeah, I think they're all fascinating. Yeah. But um, I, I just, I've had to keep a keep a step back from it and just look at, like, the studies specifically. Mm-hmm. Well, now that we have an uh, increased EMF with the cell phones and cell phone towers and all this new technology, I think... Uh, 
smoking is used for a scapegoat in that instance as well. Yeah, I think really you're probably at a point now where smoking can be used for anything. Yeah. Because we're also at a point which I find worrying. You know, somehow we're in, and I think America is quite similar to the UK with this, that we're in this sort of ultra accepting society where everything's offensive, everyone, you can be offended on behalf of someone else, everything's <laughs> racist or sexist or whatever. You know, all this stuff, I, I cannot understand why this whole Caitlyn Jenner thing is a big story. I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, smokers are like um, completely vilified mm-hmm. to the point that it's accepted to, to certainly verbally abuse. I mean, I know that there's been, there's been assaults and, and murders since smoking bans have come in. Um, they're like smokers are the one group of society where that's still acceptable Um, so it makes it so much easier to continue blaming smoking because you've reached a point where it's oh you know they're smokers they deserve it they bring it on themselves they should know better whatever it is you're almost like you've volunteered to be a guinea pig for something um, and it's fair game. You know, it's open season on smokers. I think I've got a blog post about you know open season on smokers. Um, and I, there was an article in the newspaper a few years ago um, that the I called him the journalist. You know, the guy that wrote this piece talking about how sni- um, smokers should be shot with sniper rifles. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we've seen all these kind of things. There was um, there was a school thing. Again, years ago, with um, I think they were like 16, 17 year old kids, part of a school thing, um, running around the streets, stealing cigarettes off people, you know, running around and just any other circumstance would be considered harassment or abuse or assault. But it's smokers and it's fine and it's funny and it's on YouTube and it's getting loads of uh, people liking it and sharing it. Hmm. So yeah, you know, as far as smoking being used as a scapegoat, I can't see that changing while there's this attitude. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you also mentioned in your book that um, as far as these anti-smoking advocates, they advise their their acolytes not to even get into arguments about the scientific evidence behind smoking and cancer. And they advise the best approach is to expose the tobacco industry ties of the scientists making arguments. So basically, they're making straw man arguments with no science to back it up. And the whole anti-smoking crusade is more political than anything else. Oh yeah, it's entirely political. And actually, I think one of the one of the powerful things of the internet and social media is actually you you start to see things get shared now, which are people in certain places who admit that, okay, the ban isn't for the health, but it's, it's social engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, these are their words, you know, denormalizing smoking. You see this being used against e-cigarettes all the time, was, um, yeah, well, we're going to ban it because it normalizes smoking. I mean, well, so what if it normalizes smoking? Your message for a long time was this health, and now you just don't like the look of it. So... It's um, it's very very political, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and they they don't get involved. Well, some of them get. The people high up don't get involved in in the arguments. I mean, one of the guys I spoke to, this thankfully disappeared. Oh, largely disappeared. But um, 
right around the time I released the book, there was this so-called study, and this made all the papers and the headlines, about third-hand smoke. And this guy had found oh, um, this this study was, you know, third-hand smoke. Actually, all it was, he'd, he'd called people on the phone and said, do you think that it's harmful? And then, you know, some people said yes, and some people said no. And this was apparently a study um, into third-hand smoke. What What so, is so, third-hand smoke? Oh, yeah, I was just going to ask that. Is, <laughs> yeah, so third-hand smoke is essentially the smell on your clothes or in your house. Um, obviously, that smell being made up of particulate matter and things. So uh, basically, if you had a cigarette and then you went and spoke to someone else, they would be exposed to third-hand smoke. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, they are, they are cultivating you to be scared of what you can smell. Um, because second-hand smoke wasn't tenuous enough, they've got third-hand smoke. I even heard fourth-hand smoke, and it, you know, that again didn't didn't last. But um, I think that fourth-hand smoke is that thinking about somebody smoking. <laughs> <laughs> they never got to the point that I'm aware of of, um, of actually agreeing on what it meant. So you hear different things. The one I heard the most was. You're in the presence of someone who is in the presence of a smoker. Oh my so God. you have a cigarette and you talk to someone, they're exposed to third hand smoke, and then the person they talk to is exposed to fourth hand smoke. Um, yeah, but it, like yeah. I said, I don't think they reached the consensus on it. I, I'm not aware of it. So that definition may change. But, but the guy that did the third hand smoke, um, I can't remember his first name. Um, Winnikoff was his last name, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. So I, I was emailing with this guy, and he was replying, um, and he eventually just admitted that, yeah, it's just what you smell. Mm-hmm. So somehow this is passing for science now. Mm. It's at the point now where if you see somebody smoking uh, in a movie or on TV or something, then that's going to be harmful too. That's fifth-hand smoke. <laughs> yeah, that's just a matter of time. Yeah, how many dilutions can it go through? <laughs> well, they They do now want to put like anti-smoking messages um, before a film or a TV show that has someone smoking in it. Mm-hmm. So, which is funny because you can watch films with people injecting heroin and mm-hmm. all you get is a message at the beginning that says this contains drug use. Now, somehow smoking warrants you know, an, an 18 or an R certificate um, and, a, and a warning before it, just just so you know, just mm-hmm. in case you run out and buy some cigarettes afterwards. <laughs> yeah, they already okay, actually so have started doing that to a certain extent. I know with the uh, the rating system in the U.S., they'll say that you know a, a movie is rated mature, and they'll say what it's why that is you know brief nudity or drug use or something. And one of the things in there is smoking that it actually shows smoking. So yeah, I know it's crazy. And uh, I th- what particularly surprises me about America, though. Um, I think one of the things people admire about America is you know, your whole thing about, about freedom. And obviously, around the rest of the world, we see it all the time with your Second Amendment. And without kind of getting into a debate about that, it seems to be that it's surprising that you, there's so much about the Second Amendment and general freedom, but no one cares about the right to smoke. Which, okay, there's no right to smoke per se, but it's, that comes down to your individual right to choose mm-hmm. what goes into your body. That's probably one of the most fundamental rights you can have, and it seems to just be happily given up. 
mm-hmm. yeah, completely thrown out of the window. So mm-hmm. the research shows that smoking doesn't cause lung cancer directly. And I'm sure even the staunchest anti-smoker would say, well, yeah, I admit that I know somebody who smokes and they haven't gotten cancer or people who've died and they did they smoked all their lives and they didn't have cancer. But what about other diseases like emphysema, heart disease, asthma, low birth weight? You go into a little bit of that in your book too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of those I've, I've, I dedicate chapters to. Them. I mean, basically the, the book came about with um, – I didn't set out to write this book. It was – I had all this research and I thought, you know, I need to consolidate this into something sensible. And, and then it became a book. But uh, – I, I did deliberately do it in a way that, okay, what are the things people really, really care about, you know, or, or convinced about, or, or the big points about smoking? Um, and as you say, inevitably, all of those things come up. And um, actually, pregnancy is quite an interesting one. I mean, the the thing about birth weight, I think they did, I think they did find that there's a marginally lower um, weight, nothing. I suppose if you think about it, when you had the, the baby boomers of the 50s, mm-hmm. that baby boom could never have happened with all those smoking parents if smoking had as much impact on pregnancy as, as it apparently does. Um, but there are they've done other research into pregnancy and found that um, you know, smoking mothers are a greatly reduced risk of preeclampsia and um, and these other, other things that, you know, Previously, if well, killed mothers in childbirth. Mm-hmm. So again, one of these great disservices that we see because in any other thing, any other product or or substance or whatever, you know, we we are told there's good and bad here. You know, okay, alcoholism is a big deal, but you know, a couple of glasses of red wine that's really good for you. Mm-hmm. Again, somehow there's this there's this barrier that. It's only bad for you. There's nothing good about it, and you will die. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, actually, uh, somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of smokers get lung cancer. Uh, there are positive effects of it. We, they, researchers have found that the low levels of carbon monoxide in it have helped um, stroke victims and things. And, but as far as other diseases, yeah, um, heart disease. Heart disease is one of these things where every week we prove that we have no idea what we're talking about with heart disease. <laughs> yeah. For decades, it's low-fat diets, cholesterol is terrible, run all the time, you know, exercise and things. And then just a couple of weeks ago, they said, actually, we had this all wrong. And I, I kind of parallels to, to smoking you know, with my book. I've read this book, um, The Great Cholesterol Con. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. this doctor who who'd done research like I've done and others have done into smoking and his was about fats and cholesterols and things and, um, you know, kind of similar thing of disproving or challenging the conventional wisdom. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's been vindicated because now they've come out and said, actually, yeah, it was based on flawed and cherry-picked data. Well, we're seeing the same thing with smoking. They're cherry-picking data. They're selecting what to tell us, what not to tell us, what to, what to publish. Um, I mean, the big one there, of course, is when the World Health Organization did their biggest ever study into passive smoking, and it came back and said, there's no risk, and children are 22% less likely to get lung cancer as adults. Well, they buried that report. Mm-hmm. That's an investigative, mm-hmm. 
investigative research from um, the newspapers to publish that. They didn't want to publish that because it went against what they were, what their mission was. I mean, the World Health Organization openly state that their their goal is a smoke-free world. Mm-hmm. They're not going to go back on that because of the study. They'll, they'll hide the study, which is what they've done. So, um, yeah, with heart disease, the particulars of it, there have been um, intervention studies. So, you, know, you get a bunch of people who smoke and, and eat bacon and sit down. And then you get a group of people who don't smoke, don't eat bacon and stand up and run on bed and whatever. And, or they say to them, we're going to make you stop smoking and you're going to if you're healthier and whatnot. And actually, they've done a couple of these studies and they backfire because like the animals, the people that gave up smoking died or got ill. And the people that mm-hmm. carried on didn't. And um, this is another thing that's been mentioned a few times. It's more than... It's more than a, um, casual relationship that people who certainly certainly who give up smoking when they necessarily don't want to or don't necessarily want to rather are more likely to get something like lung cancer Mm -hmm. than if they've carried on so on the heart disease line that that's been um that's been the results but we've also found things like bacteria so years ago Really laughed at saying that bacteria could could have um, be linked to or cause something like a stomach ulcer. Now we know it's true. I think the same thing has been shown with heart disease. Certainly, in some instances, that actually you know it's the bacteria. We we we've got it wrong, or we've misled you on um, things like cholesterol, which your body makes anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, yeah, so if you eat too much cholesterol, your body produces less of it, and if you're not eating enough, like a cholesterol is. It's not just, you know, it's hugely essential for us. It's what keeps our cells, cells, you know, to say that we need to avoid it and it's bad. I mean, it's it's beyond um, it's beyond bad advice. You know, it's, it's scientific contempt, if anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's malpractice. Yeah, I I totally agree. Yeah, um, that's the word I was looking for. Thank you. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. You know, and I suppose there's, there's obviously going to be some doctors and nutritionists who, you know, probably genuinely believe it. I think when you have anything like this, where it's, it's as at the beginning, you know, when you said about the books on nutrition, but mm-hmm. they're still steadfast in the anti-smoking thing. Well, I imagine they they probably believe it because you, it's reinforced over years. I mean, you, children are taught this as as young as they can possibly be, this is the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like a religion in itself. It's hard to shake that off. And I mm-hmm. think actually smoking, as 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 much as someone has to go out of their way really to find out things about dietary um, dietary research and things that that are, that are different to the mainstream, it's still not necessarily particularly difficult to find. Um, nor is it so difficult to accept. But I think one of the, the, the really challenging things with smoking research is for a lot of people now, it's it goes against what they've always been told. So mm-hmm. people of my age, when we were when we were younger, it was, um, you know, you saw a lot of smoking, it was like, okay, it's not good for you. But now, I mean, it's, I think it's kind of a brainwashing stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, so as far as other diseases, emphysema, this is one. I don't know if you've ever tried to find any research linking emphysema to smoking. 
No, not outright. Yeah, when I was when I was writing this chapter, the the horrendous thing was I couldn't find anything. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Yeah, you type in cancer and smoking and loads comes up, but with emphysema, it's it's more of an assumed relationship. And as recently as the seventies, it was said in in medical books that the majority of doctors think smoking causes it. And again, it goes back to the thing of, uh, okay, you put something into your lungs and, and there's a believable relationship with ill health relating to that organ, you know, so emphysema and lung cancer. Um, but actually, there's really not much about it. Um, we know things that emphysema rates have continued to increase as smoking rates have decreased. Now, obviously, there's a lag, you know, because emphysema affects older people more than younger people. So, But you could still say, well, at, at best, it should have plateaued. Mm-hmm. But the most interesting thing I found about emphysema was this discovery of a genetic link. Um, and basically there's a gene that controls the liver's production of a protein called alpha-1 antitrypsin. And so people, a lot of people with emphysema uh, basically lack this gene. And the, re- the result is that this, it doesn't control this protein, um, which then when it's left unchecked, the alveolar tissue gets destroyed, which is, of course, emphysema. Um, and it's, it's been said in in um, medical books, actually, that almost every person with emphysema has this, uh, <clears throat> has this deficiency. Hmm. But it's, it, you have to really go a long way to find this. Because mm-hmm. yeah, anything you find otherwise is just it's a statement of assumed fact that emphysema is caused by smoking. Um, and of course, emphysema today is is COPD, which just is emphysema and chronic bronchitis. They're, they're not even the same thing. Mm-hmm. There's this umbrella term. Mm-hmm. So this makes me think, like, aside from all the environmental pollution, the poor diets, being of a lower socioeconomic class with all the stresses that that entails, and um, being brainwashed, probably from the beginning of your life, that smoking is bad, smoking causes cancer. How much of the cancer that smokers do get is actually kind of uh, their own mind kind of fulfilling, you know, this? Oh, yeah. What's, um, oh, yeah, the, um, the nocebo effect. Yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking of, the nocebo effect. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, that was really something that, that came to my attention after after I'd written the book. Um, I suppose one of the reasons I need to update this thing is because I I was introduced to so many more people um, after writing it that actually mm-hmm. would be really useful in it. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't give you any numbers or anything on on that, but I, I think it's very very powerful. We we know scientific scientific fact the power of a placebo. There's no reason why the opposite isn't equally powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have this kind of witch doctor voodoo effect that, um, and actually you, you can see it just in everyday life. You, you, I think you have to go quite a long way to meet an everyday smoker who who isn't as convinced of the, of the harm smoking is doing as a non-smoker. Yeah, one of those mm-hmm. self-hating smokers, the guilty yeah. smokers. The guilty smokers, and how yeah. easy do they make for anti-smokers to further victimize them because they have the mindset that they're doing something wrong. You know, so as we yeah. were talking about before, 
about victimizing smokers and things. Well, smokers have the exact same attitude a lot of times. Um, mm. So that it makes it so easy. But actually, you know, if, it's not easy to have a counter argument to this, even if you don't believe that, even if you don't believe that they're wrong about the health aspect, you've still got the whole things about about freedom and, and personal respect. Uh, you know, or frankly, I, I don't really know how people believe the, the new claims. I, I just I think there comes a point where you give someone enough rope and they'll hang themselves. Mm. I thought that would happen years ago with the smoking, um, because they're just getting more and more unbelievable. You know, third hand smoke and fourth hand smoke and um, blindness and back pain. How how far can it go? But um, yeah, smokers yeah. are just making it as a group making it so easy but actually the thing they need to be shouting about is that there is no disease that only smokers get mm -hmm. uh, it's not even like 90% of smokers are getting lung cancer or anything you know um, and it's not like that smokers are draining society the amount of, of tax that's being paid and the amount of money going into the economy as a result um, and, and of course that's the other thing with, with the anti-smoking practices these hugely grossly exaggerated prices of tobacco now. It's just driving people to the black market, which probably puts them at genuine risk because they're completely unregulated. There's all sorts of horrible things in these products. Mm -hmm. It's easier for children mm -hmm. to get access. To. Uh, if they really cared, this, this um, rhetoric about we don't want to normalize smoking, we don't want children being exposed to smoking. Well, there is the results of these legislation is that smokers are on the streets mm -hmm. before they would be in, in the park you know or the casino or wherever they might be indoors they're now on the streets so now the anti-smokers are saying well children can see them and there's litter everywhere so we'll put them back inside and they can't have it both but this is the gently gently approach you, know, mm -hmm. you come out 20 years ago and said let's just ban smoking you couldn't have done it but what you can do over a period of, of 30, 40 years, one step at a time, and you can slowly get it. And I think that's what we've seen, this, this social engineering mm -hmm. in practice. Hopefully this is something they'll look back on in 50 years as an example, um, but we'll get out of the madness. <laughs> well, your, your book goes into another interesting thing about smoking, too. Um, you said that in your book that nicotine is not the primary reason that people smoke, and there's a difference between mm. an addiction and a habit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the um, this is something that, that I saw recently as well. That they've, um, I can't remember who, um, but it claimed to have discovered that actually nicotine isn't addictive. Mm -hmm. And I think mm. you can, I think there's real world proof of this, that People don't get addicted to nicotine patches. People aren't addicted to the e-cigarettes that contain nicotine. People aren't addicted to the gum. What people really have, and I think the reason e-cigarettes have been so effective where traditional nicotine replacement therapy failed, is that e-cigarettes very, very closely mimic the overall, um, the overall process of smoking. Mm -hmm. So you're holding something. You're, you've got that hand-to-mouth action, you're feeling and witnessing for all intents and purposes the smoke. Um, you know, it's, it's, and I think this is what, what non-smokers never get, is that smoking is more than, than this addictive process. It's, it's a sensory enjoyment. 
Um, so as far as nicotine goes, I mean, they they did a study a while ago with um, uh, air steward, stewards and stewardesses uh, on a short-haul flight and a long-haul flight. Because obviously what you'd expect is that if you're on a flight for 10 hours and you can't smoke, you'll, you'll be craving a smoke for that time. Actually, what they found was there was a point in both flights, say, coming into land, I, I can't believe exactly, I think it's in the book somewhere, that um, that's when the cravings kicked in. Basically, when, when the smokers knew they would soon be able to smoke, they started craving it. Mm -hmm. If you were to find, because we, we get told smoking is addictive as heroin, so if you were to find a heroin addict, they wouldn't have the same um, experience. What they would find is actually after quite a specific period of time without the heroin, they would have very, very serious withdrawal effects. Which, um, mm -hmm. and that doesn't happen with smoking. So the idea that this is a physical addiction, even remotely comparable to heroin, is just fantasy. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there was one, uh, there was a researcher I was talking to um, about the time I was doing the book who was saying that the um, the most addictive cigarettes, they have freebase nicotine added to them. But actually then he said that the cigarettes that had these added to them were, were additive-free organic cigarettes, you know, brands like American Spirits. He kind of shot his own argument in the foot with this <laughs> claim. So can you get into, like, have you researched any of the differences between commercial cigarettes and, you know, organically grown cigarettes like uh, American Spirit or whole leaf tobacco that people shred themselves? Yeah, I haven't done a great deal of research into it. But I think as a uh, as a kind of initial reaction, I think there's, I think it's really preferable to go down the organic route, you're, as, you, as you mentioned, things like whole leaf rather than... I, I compare it to eating real food or, or processed food. Mm -hmm. If you've got something that's really just this colourful mess of e-numbers and, and things you can't even pronounce and whatever, you know, and then comparing it to a real home-cooked meal, there's, I think there's, there's really a similarity there. You've got this whole leaf products that you shed yourself and and to be honest with you if you open a commercial cigarette and, and feel the texture of it and compare it to what you'd get um you know from an organic product or an additive free product they're different mm -hmm. they're very different um and I, I don't think it's necessarily the same discussion as as additives in cigarettes and things and um i would imagine though that if there are naturally uh, naturally present chemicals and, and whatever that uh, help with the beneficial side of smoking that we discussed before, I think it stands to reason that they would be more so in a, in a, a cigarette that's as close as natural, as close to natural as possible. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, of course, the studies that, that I did research for the book, they would have just been using commercial cigarettes. So I really think that the discussion moves away from are these harmful and, and et cetera to is one better than the other one? Mm -hmm. and I certainly think that one is better than the other one. Yeah, I think that organic and or, or a natural additive-free product would be superior to this processed junk, the junk food of cigarettes. Yeah, the, mm -hmm. on the American spirit boxes, I think they write... Uh 
something to the effect of just because this is organic or additive free, that doesn't mean that this is a safer cigarette. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, uh, there's regulation, and the thing about regulation in in any industry is that it's there's seldom room for the exceptions like that. I mean, of course, from their point of view, I don't think there's been much, if any, specific research that compares the difference. But if they're, to do that research, you're probably talking about finding someone who just starts smoking and you give them American spirit and then you give someone else a pack of Marlboro's and you make them smoke that for the whole life. I and mean, I don't think that <laughs> this has ever been done. So okay, they would be, as a as a tobacco product, they've got the same regulations what they have to put on there. But of course, there's also the point that it's in their interest to put it on there. Because, you know, you've had the master settlement agreement now, so, you know, the tobacco products, tobacco companies have to pay out um, the money to the states and things. But by doing, by by coming out at the beginning and saying, look, this product could kill you, this is your responsibility, they're, they're, they're insuring themselves against future lawsuits. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that we know in hindsight, one of the big things that smokers jump on all the time is that tobacco industry, he kept secrets and it lied and it hid things and it knew that they were killing people. Well, now what they're doing is saying, this could kill you if you smoke, it's down to you and they're protecting themselves from these lawsuits. So American Spirit, I mean, even if they genuinely believe or it is genuinely the case that their product is safer, mm-hmm. they're not going to admit it in a, in a time like this. I mean, it's, it's hard enough getting mm. them to admit anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, don't, you don't hear if it's about mm-hmm. companies these days. But, they're as meek as they come, really. Mm-hmm. Erica, you had something? Oh, yeah. I just wanted to share kind of what we were talking about. Um, I've noticed that um, non-smokers have said to me several times, because I smoke natural whole leaf tobacco or American spirits, that they, um, they're not bothered by it or that, you know, I really don't like the commercial cigarettes, but your tobacco doesn't really bother me. And, and um, you know, it, your house doesn't smell or your car doesn't smell or you don't have that third and fourth hand smoke. You know, I, I find that really interesting. It's it's almost like uh, like we were talking about this whole mindset that smoking's bad, smoking's bad. But then when you're around them and, um, you know, being conscientious of course it's the feedback is oh it's not that bad and i've even had a few friends who are pretty staunch anti-smokers say well i really like the smell it it smells uh it smells good you know so i wanted to add that in there i don't know if any of our other co-hosts or even our listeners have had a similar experience where you know the conversation is not as intense once you have dialogue with them I, I've certainly noticed that. Um, actually, with American Spirit, the, the same thing was that, oh, that doesn't smell bad. Um, it's almost mm. actually, my experience is almost like it is, it's a fresher smell. Mm. I think that's the best word for me to use there, is uh, cleaner almost. Um, yeah, I, I definitely can share that experience. Yeah, it kind of doesn't linger around. Yeah. It's like uh, commercial cigarettes, though. Yeah, well, I I wanted to share recently, I had kind of an interesting, um, I've never really been assaulted, as we were sharing earlier, uh, 
But I was on the beach a couple of weeks ago and I had my own roll your own cigarette and I put it out in the sand and a woman halfway down the beach started to yell at me about how disgusting and how could you do that and you know initially my response was to get upset but I was really calm and I said you know well I just wanted to let you know this is you know an organic cigarette and there's no filter and I'm not really polluting it's not bad you know it's from the earth and and then she kind of got frustrated with me and was like well you know it's it's illegal to smoke on the beach here and I was like well actually not yet as far as I know <laughs> but it was just I and and I kind of concluded the conversation with thanks for your concern um, I think you should worry about yourself more than anything, but it was it was like that um what we've been talking about in this show that that kind of angry I'm going to attack you and she wasn't even, you know, within twenty feet of me and so um it just goes to show the mind programming and we're talking about children too, you know, this whole like they, the looks and the, the vibe is, you know, oh, my gosh, you're doing mm-hmm. something wrong and this is terrible. But, you know, like you write in your book about the bonfire thing. I mean, how many people take their kids camping and burn, you know, bonfires day and night? Nobody ever says anything about the toxicity of that. But, you know, God forbid you should light up your natural cigarette anywhere near children, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and how highly strung do you need to be to be um, getting that stressed about what someone else is doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The levels of stress there are probably far more damaging. That's right. There's sure. always this air of superiority in looking down your nose and they're so much better than you because they don't smoke and they're just so sensitive and delicate that the yeah. the smoke assaults their their nostrils and they just can't stand it. Yeah, has this what is this what the, the smoking crusade come to? Just the inferior, weakened human beings? Is this what we're really striving for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's funny how much the uh, smokers actually pick up on that thing. Like I, every smoker I ever meet, you know, one of the first things out of their mouth is like, "Oh yeah, I gotta quit. I gotta quit. This is, you know, this is terrible what I'm doing here." You know, that kind of mind program like sets in for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or all the. Oh, I was just gonna say, or all the pressure, you know, with. Um, kids and like you know I remember my parents paying my sisters thousands of dollars by the time they turn 18 if they refuse to ever smoke a cigarette you know and you're just like this is insanity (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah but I think it changed around you before we had smoking bans in my experience was that people weren't nearly as concerned it was do you mind if I smoke oh you know don't worry I'll move away Um, it was all very amicable and civilized and then all of a sudden it's almost like flicking a switch the smoking ban comes in and people are suddenly really distressed mm-hmm. yeah you know I, it, it was just well this didn't bother you last week you know what's changed okay people can no longer smoke indoors nothing's really changed in terms of what you're exposed to or the people you're with but you've seen families be ripped apart by this i mean i it's kind of heartbreaking but I've had people talk to me um, they say you know oh, I'm not actually my grandkids anymore because my son or daughter won't 
let them be around me, even if I don't smoke around them. But they mm-hmm. won't. They can't be in a smoker's house. Um, yeah, and it's ripping families apart. And I think this is the thing that the real tragedy of it is that it focuses on smokers as individuals and doing the right thing and making them healthier and protecting children. But actually, the wider implications of this is is devastating. You know, people's families and mm. um, the, the people. You know, particularly elderly people and grandparents and and uh, you know where they're physically losing out on their family members. And then you get in society where, you know, the smoking ban just decimated the pub industry. So, you you, you know, every pub I ever went in, I think, probably had that old guy in the corner who had a, had a drink and a cigarette. He no longer has mm. any social life because he's got nowhere to yeah. go. You know, and mm-hmm. this is the, the, the wider impact, you know, and this is the thing that people don't talk about. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't get mentioned because it's always about this message of for the greater good. Well, um, I wonder if we can get a little bit more into some more of the health benefits of smoking. We mentioned the mucus production and how that uh, has a protective effect uh, and how uh, in radiation studies, uh, smokers, you know, live longer. Um, But there's some other health benefits that you got into as far as like it being uh, antispasmodic relaxant, diuretic, uh, certain things along those lines. Can you get a little bit more into some more yeah. benefits? Yeah, I mean, it's been used medicinally for, for millennia. You mm-hmm. know, so right back to the peace pipe. Um, and it's been used um, medicinally uh, you know, more recently as well. But um, what, what's been found scientifically is smoking is the, the biggest single factor in reducing the risk of al- al- Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. Tourette's is also up there as well. Uh, and it all ties into, we also know that smokers have improved concentration, um, you know, it improves cognitive function. So actually there's, it makes perfect sense that it also helps protect these um, degenerative diseases, you know, these motor neuron diseases. Um, that all makes perfect sense. But we also know that it contains um, the um, MAOIs that are, are used in treating Parkinson's. And it's, a, it's an ingredient in the tablet, but it's also present in the smoke. Mm-hmm. So, again, mm-hmm. this isn't some fanciful leap into conclusions with it. We can actually, we know scientifically that, okay, this is in the smoke and, and it has this impact. Um, osteoporosis is reduced. At the, threefold in smokers. Um, hmm. Antioxidants are improved in smokers. Um, the, in fact, this is one that actually gets shown time and time again. You know, the, the free radicals that are linked to aging, um, the, uh, the effect on the immune system, the, the, the effect from the increase in these chemicals you know, within, within us, um, is has a positive effect on the immune system, similar to exercise has on on our muscles and things. <clears throat> you know, and well, I suppose if you really want to see evidence of the benefits of smoking, it's that the pharmaceutical industry is quietly trying to replicate the benefits. Mm-hmm. Because the pharmaceutical industry is probably the single biggest um, benefit benefits the most from these anti-smoking legislation because it sells the replacement products. So if you want to quit smoking, you you buy gum or a patch or 
you know, nowadays people use e-cigarettes too, of course, they kicked off a fuss when they came out because they were challenging their, their inhalers and things. Um, and of course, e-cigarettes aren't regulated. So all of a sudden they've got this direct threat. And, but actually what they were doing, they've been quietly working on drugs to mimic the beneficial aspects of, of smoke. So there's a pharmaceutical industry funded group called the Society for Research on Nicotine and Tobacco. Um, and they did a review on the neuroprotective aspects of smoking. And they also admitted that they're striving for the prevention and treatment of tobacco use. So hmm. if you think about that, the, the prevention, okay, the prevention of it, but the treatment of tobacco use. So what would that be? I mean, that's, you'd imagine that's something weaning people off. We'll get them stopping smoking and we'll get them on our on our product. So they're the clear winners and they spend a fortune in, in lobbying and um, and studies. I mean, the genetically modified rodents that I spoke about earlier, mm-hmm. and that study was sponsored by Pfizer. So they're really there lurking in the shadows and they sponsor anti-smoking events that the tobacco industry itself is banned from going to. So all of a sudden you've got this industry that can't even attend the events that are determining what happens to its industry. So it's like if you run a business and another group of people deciding what your business can and can't do, but by the way, you can't even hear it. So it's quite shocking about this, you know. Um, But as far as the benefits go, that same review also made the point that somewhere around 90% of schizophrenics smoke. Mm-hmm. And it's been shown that they, they kind of self-medicate with it because of the way it helps them. But most schizophrenics are chain smokers and they suffer between 30 and 50% less cancer of general sites around the body, not just lung cancer. Um, the non-smokers of the same age. So there's this mm-hmm. great natural study right there that there's this group of people, the vast, vast majority of whom smoke um, but they've got less instances of cancer than non-smokers of the same age. Doug, do you have a comment? Yeah, well, I, I just you mentioned uh, earlier on that there was a mouse study, uh, and you just kind of mentioned offhand that they, they um, uh, by being exposed to the smoke, that that group actually had greater cognitive abilities. I was wondering if there's any um, any further research on that that's found, like you know, an actual enhanced ability to think or problem solve or something like that with uh, with smoking. Are you still there, Richard? Uh, I think maybe we've lost him here. Sorry, bear with us one second here. I think we're having some uh, technical issues. Are you still there, Richard? I am, yeah. Okay, did, did you hear my question? or? I heard part of your question. So you were asking about the um, improved cognitive function? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So was, was that, sorry, was that in the animals or in people? Are you still there, Richard? Well... I we seem to be getting an uh, echo effect here. I don't know if somebody has their uh, sound turned on on the show, baby. Uh, I heard part of your question. So you were asking about the um, improved cognitive function? Uh, let me fix it. Yeah, I just uh, I just muted okay, uh, somebody good. there, and I think that worked. Yeah, no, my question was basically that you had mentioned in the mouse studies um, that there was that the smoking group did have um, 
uh, increased cognitive function. So I was just wondering if there was any further studies on that and if we knew um, whether or not uh, uh, smoking actually has that kind of benefit. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, specific, specific studies, um, I can't name offhand, <laughs> but certainly there's, there's plenty of research that shows there is this benefit. Um, although what, what I also found was that it's been said that smokers have increased cognitive levels, so concentration and things, mental alertness, the non-smokers, but smokers who have been deprived of a cigarette for a while or, or whatever their you know, choice of consumption is, um, they had less concentration than non-smokers. Mm. So essentially, if you consider the, the non-smokers as kind of the base level, and then smokers would be above that. But if you're a smoker who hasn't smoked in a while, you're below that base level. Mm. So you can, mm. um, it almost definitively shows that cause and effect that it, consuming it increases it and then being deprived of it reduces it, although mm. reduces it below what you probably would have had before. Um, so yeah, there, there's definitely plenty out there on that. And it's just, um, that that's something that, I've heard quite a lot, actually. And what's interesting is that the research seems to be suggesting it's not just the nicotine. Um, and more anecdotal evidence, people who stop smoking and, and use e-cigarettes have uh, repeatedly, I've heard them say that they didn't feel the same on it. So they might have felt kind of fuzzy-headed or they couldn't concentrate as much or that that kind of thing where, you know, it's all to do with, with that, that cognitive level um, function, rather improved again when they went back to the real thing. So it seems to be, whereas for years we focused on, or sorry, you know, they focused on, and we've heard all about nicotine, nicotine, nicotine. It's just it's a much bigger thing here, which is obviously, as we discussed before, about the addiction of nicotine, that there's something, there's more at play. Mm. You know, so whether mm. it's um, why people smoke, or why people continue to smoke, or why people don't really get much out of the nicotine replacement therapy, or why the e-cigarettes aren't quite the same. Essentially, there's something in the smoke, this, this combination of, um, of chemicals and compounds that that has a greater effect than any one of them in isolation. Yeah, so it mm. sounds like there's still some some undiscovered compound that's found in tobacco that lends yeah. to this feeling of well-being and you know cognitive improvement. I don't know, maybe some people at some level know this, and that's one of the reasons for the smoking bans. Yeah. To get people I mean, dumbed down. Yeah, I mean, this is something, you know, going back again to um, what I said before about um, people having different theories, and that's certainly one of them. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you hear that, well, and beyond that, too, you also hear that the, where people congregate is essentially a threat to to any establishment. Mm -hmm. So, if you, you know, so by by ruining that community uh, with this kind of legislation that stops people um, having those communities like that, then uh, it weakens people, it dumbs them down and so on. And um, yeah, there's any number of theories on it. And, um, I think each one of them is equally interesting. Really. Yeah. <laughs> there's probably some really, really far out theory. <laughs> that we don't even know about or don't want to say. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I didn't quite catch what you said. 
you know, there's probably even more whacked out and weird out there theories that we don't know about or some people just don't want to say. Oh, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I suppose, you know, it probably doesn't get any more wacky than what the anti-smokers are saying, so <laughs> probably hear about it. Yeah. True. You know, being in the presence of someone who was in the presence of a smoker, I mean, it, it doesn't get worse than that. Yeah. Well, another but one makes- of the uh, the health benefits that you mentioned in your book is that um, there's nicotine or compounds within nicotine that promote new blood vessel growth around blocked arteries. Um, yeah. And it decreases the risk for gum recession, which, you know, going to the dentist, you always hear, oh, you smoke, that's probably why your gums are receding. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was a tiny study, but I thought it was an interesting one nonetheless, because generally I, I tried to only include things that um, were... That that's something that basically would have would have been thrown out for being too small, essentially. But I, I thought mm-hmm. it was interesting enough just on on the principle of what it was, um, because as you said, it's something you always hear yeah. the opposite of it, um, for sure. But I mean, it's all been deliberate. Um, this this gently gently approach. It's not something. I think the public at large believes that it's happened. We we know more, and as we learn more, new legislation proposed. Things like plain packaging. Oh, we've only just discovered that that the packaging has an effect. And if it didn't have an effect, the tobacco companies wouldn't care. Well, actually, of course, the tobacco companies care because it's brand differentiation. So, you know, if I make a pack of cigarettes and you make a pack of cigarettes, the the brand and the packaging is how we people tell them apart. So, of course, when the anti-smokers say it it makes people start smoking. The reality is that the tobacco industries care because, you know, my brand might cost more than your brand, but if they look the same, people are going to buy the cheaper one. So, but actually, if you go back to the, the, the 70s, you know, there's um, what's called the Godber, Godber Blueprint. And uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the, um, so George Godber was British Chief Medical Officer from 1960 to 73, I think. And in a time when you not many people were, he was extremely anti-smoking. So he called for the denormalization of smoking to the point that smoking outside of the home should be um, criminal. So he set out this essentially a plan of action, which is why it's been called the blueprint um, of ways, what, what should happen and how it should happen. Um, so things like increase the tax and, and ban smoking outside of the home, um, you know, in public places and things like that, things that we are starting to see. And the goal here was to have a smoke-free world by, I think, 2000, which they've missed, but actually we're, we're getting there. <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. probably his most famous point was to make people think that where people accepted that the smoker was uh, potentially harming themselves, they said that they needed to make other people think the smoker was harming them, mm-hmm. so which is where secondhand smoke came. Um, but yeah, I mean, this this you going back to the seventies. Secondhand smoke didn't really become a thing until the nineties. So whereas we can see, you know, in the media and, and the public believes, oh, this is what we've just discovered because excellent scientists have discovered it. Actually, it's something that was set in motion long before. And we're still in the process. I mean, there's still things happening now that 
this guy proposed this long ago. And we, mm. we were still getting there. Um, because, again, they knew full well that if they tried to say it at the time, it, it wouldn't have happened. So they, they, you know, gently, gently approached to it. And I think actually that's one of those things that if people were aware of, that would quite quickly change their opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, so going back to you know, when you asked how did I start to change my opinions and things, some I think there are certain things like this where you you realise how big it is you know, and how mm-hmm. it's not something that could just be interpreted one way or another. It's quite definite, quite deliberate. This this is what it was. Uh, you know, this is how we've been lied to. This is why I've been lied to. And this is this is how they've done it systematically. Mm-hmm. And I think that the the thing of the God improvement is um, definitely one of those things. Yeah, you said in your book it's one of the biggest lies ever told. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. And I I, I remember at the time thinking, you know, can I say that? That's quite a bold claim. But mm-hmm. I, I, I included it on the basis that you know, firstly, how many smokers there are. Mm-hmm. But then also, how long it's gone on. I mean, you know, this has been going on decades now. Um, you know, many decades. And um, and then, you know, the, the, the wider impact, you know, as we discussed before, you know, how families are being affected, how people have been... People are going out of their way to be negative in some way to smokers, mm-hmm. whether that's verbal or physical... You know, so there's these huge impacts on this, and and the one that really disgusts me is is hospitals. I mean, people are you know you don't go to the hospital for fun. You're either there as a patient or you're there visiting someone, and you're invariably stressed. And then there's just this you know, essentially lack of compassion, lack of humanity about you can't smoke here, you have to smoke over there. And, um, especially in the UK, of course, where most hospitals are public anyway, you know, we've all paid for them. Mm-hmm. So, but there, there's just you know, we, we have this thing where our health service isn't being funded enough or they're actually employing people on, on pretty generous salaries to harass smokers to smoke on the premises. You know, you think, well, that money could buy new equipment. You know, that could employ a nurse. That could do any number of things that genuinely improve people's health. Mm-hmm. But you're choosing to employ someone to nag people. Mm-hmm. You know. Jonathan, you had a comment? Yeah, um, Richard, I was just curious if uh, while you were working on this material, since it's such a charged issue, um, have you ever received any personal attacks uh, over your work, uh, you know, from the industry or from, you know, the anti-smoking industry or from any of the uh, activists that you wrote about? Um, You know, I I guess I don't know if you would have ever felt in danger necessarily, but have you ever had your, your reputation attacked while you were working on this material? Um, no, thank, thankfully, and, and, you know, touch wood, no, but I think that's largely I credit that to not being big enough. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I've spoken to, where the attacks have come in, actually, is, um, you know, if I've had an article published in a in a bigger platform than my own, you get the standard, he's in the, in, he's in the pay of the tobacco industry. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've not experienced anything, anything too bad, but, um, you know, in fairness, I've I've almost gone out of my way to to talk to them because uh, I think it's important to you know I think if, if we know things that well you, hang on you're deceiving people this or that's not quite true or that third hand smoke study for example um, you know we so I've not made it a secret with them but um, 
I don't try and aggravate them either. So no, I, thankfully I haven't experienced anything too bad. Mm. Well, that that's good. <laughs> yeah, I'm pleased about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's partially also. Questions? Go ahead, Doug. Well, I was just going to say it's probably partly also because your book is pretty airtight. You know, if they're gonna if they're gonna uh, you know attack you, it would basically just be all smears and like attack on your person and yeah, like accusations of getting money from uh, tobacco companies because they can't argue with the science. I mean, it's all right there and right out in the open. Like it's uh, it would be a very difficult platform to try and uh, and argue against. Yeah, and they purposely say don't argue the science. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there might have been an element of that. Yeah, I mean. Um... I mean, I, I appreciate you saying it's airtight, but thank you for that. But um, yeah, yeah I, I think that it would. Um, I imagine I'd, I'd probably have to do more to aggravate them if, if for them to do anything. Otherwise, um, yeah, because you're, you're totally right. Of course, that they they don't really engage in the in the science. Whenever they, even the even the big ones, the, the actual organisations themselves, invariably it's just a sweeping statement of oh well, everyone knows. That smoking does this, so they're just wrong. You know, they almost play it away as if oh, they're just crazy. Don't worry about it. Um, they never get into the, into the detail of it because if they do, then they they can't win because you know they're they're in the wrong. Whether all these, I remember um, I was talking to one person who uh, he's he's not so much a campaign like this, but he, he's a, an entrepreneur over here and he's he's quite famous in his own way. But he was he's um, very very anti-smoking. And he was talking about banning the, the cigarette vending machines in pubs and uh, how children can get to them. So I said, well, why can't you just have them like on the wall rather than freestanding on, on the ground? And he said, well, that would be discrimination against short people. Eric, I have a question. Oh, yeah, I had a quick question. Um, kind of on the flip side of that, have you gotten um, emails or letters of support for your work? Obviously, we're, we, we're, we're supporters of your work, but have you had people contact you with, you know, thank you for writing this book, this has really helped, you know, me, and uh, have you gotten that kind of support from people from writing this book? Yeah, I, I have actually, and um, you know, not not all the time, but I've, I've had a fair number of it, and it always, I'm always really, really pleased with it because it's what what surprised me though is where it comes from. I mean, I've I had a, a Polish doctor email me a couple of years ago to say he agreed with it, um, any number of people really from walks of life, and one that was particularly that you know I remember really well was a mother actually. It was a I think a teenage son. Was smoking, and she just said, you know, it really helped her kind of accept it more. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was another one who was going to talk to the family about it to, um, you know, try and um, smooth things over because the family weren't pleased. You know, again, we always talk about before about the, the way that these the measures can impact the family, so grandparents and grandchildren and things. So, um, and yeah, other people just generally said that they they found it really interesting. So, I have had those, and I've. I've had one email, I think one email from someone who who had a different opinion. Um, <laughs> generally, yeah, they're very positive. Yeah. That's great to hear. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. 
That's a great yeah, question. You know, they're always unexpected, and um, it's it's just really nice to see that actually the, the the difference that you're making. Because that wasn't really, as I said, I didn't really set out to write this book. It, it came together organically, and then uh, took on a life of its own. So for people to be finding it and and finding something in it, it's really great. Well, that's good to know. It gives me hope for humanity. Not all is lost. There's some people yeah, who can have their right. eyes open. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like uh, we've reached the end of our show. I want to thank you, Richard White, for coming on and enlightening us all on this very controversial topic. Um, yeah, the book is called Smoke Screens, The Truth About Tobacco. Again, you can buy it on Amazon and Richard White's webpage is smokescreens.org and you do post articles on your webpage. You have a blog there. Yeah, I, I ashamed to say I saw this morning how long it's been since my last one, but um, <laughs> I do from time to time. Yeah, but I mean, if anyone um, is wondering, you know, I they can they can reach me on there. I I monitor those emails personally, and it's not someone else that does it. Um, and my social media and things, it's, it's all me personally. So I'm easy enough to get hold of. Okay. Well, yeah, there are on there occasionally. Thank you so much. Thank you again thank for you. coming on to the show. Yeah. It's been an excellent conversation. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Well, good. Um, again, buy the book, folks. Very good. Pass it on to your loved ones. Pass it on to some guilty smokers you might know. Smoke screens, mm-hmm. the truth about tobacco. Mm-hmm. Thanks for coming on, Richard. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Richard. Thanks. Thank you. So, we do have a pet health segment prepared for us by Zoya. Do you want to play that, Jonathan? Yeah, let's go into that. Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today we are going to talk about summer and what you can do to help your pets enjoy it as much as possible and without any harmful effects. Summer is a wonderful season, full of life and colors, but there are all kinds of nuances that should be kept in mind. For example, some dog breeds, especially uh, brachycephalic breeds, or dogs with short noses, compact skulls, and compressed upper respiratory systems, like the pug, are inefficient panthers which means that they are unable to cool themselves as effectively as other dog breeds. Because of this, brachycephalic breeds are more prone to overheating and require extra care in warm weather, particularly access to shade and plenty of water. Other dog breeds uh, that are at high risk of overheating are Pekingese Bulldog, Shih Tzu, Boston Terrier, French Bulldog, Boxer, and Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. But don't forget other breeds or cats too, since they also require an increased amount of water. For that you can do something both fun and tasty for your pets, like making popsicles or catsicles. You can freeze meat broth with chunks of meat or fish or anything your pet likes and is good for them. Other fun ways of dealing with heat can be small pools for your pets or sprinkles. If you have a lake nearby, you can take your pets for a walk and allow them to play in the water a bit, but just remember that lakes, especially lakes with the ducks, are a perfect environment for a myriad of bacteria and viruses. 
Dogs considered to be major reservoirs for viruses, like for example influenza A viruses. And while they are not susceptible to those viruses, they can transfer them to others, both animals and humans. Other basic summer safety tips are never leave your pet in a parked car, not even for a minute, not even with the car running and air conditioner on. On a warm day, temperatures inside the vehicle can rise rapidly to dangerous levels. On an 85 Fahrenheit degree day or 29 Celsius, for example, the temperature inside the car with the windows opened slightly can reach 102 degrees Fahrenheit or 38.8 Celsius within 10 minutes. After 30 minutes, the temperature will reach 120 degrees Fahrenheit or 48.8 degrees Celsius. Your pet may suffer irreversible organ damage or even die. Watch for humidity. It's important to remember that it's not just the ambient temperature, but also the humidity that can affect your pet. Also limit exercise on hot days. Take care when exercising your pet. Adjust the intensity and duration of exercise in accordance with the temperature. On very hot days, limit exercise to early morning or evening hours. And be especially careful with pets with white-colored ears who are more susceptible to skin cancer. Also, asphalt gets very hot and can burn your pet's paws, so walk your dog on the grass if possible. Always carry water with you to keep your dog from dehydrating. Also, uh, don't rely on a fan. Uh, pets respond differently to heat than humans do. Dogs, for instance, sweat primarily through their feet. And fans don't cool off pets as effectively as they do people. Maybe allow them to go over a wet grass or floor, or maybe over a wet blanket or wet body wrap. Uh, provide ample shade and water. Anytime your pet is outside, make sure he or she has protection from heat and sun and plenty of fresh cold water. In heat waves, do popsicles or add ice uh, to water when possible. Tree shade uh, is ideal because, they, uh, because it doesn't obstruct airflow. A doghouse does not provide relief from heat. In fact, it makes it worse. Also, don't forget to watch for signs of heat stroke. Extreme temperatures can cause heat stroke. Some signs of heat stroke are heavy panting, glazed eyes, a rapid heartbeat, difficulty breathing, excessive thirst, lethargy, fever, dizziness, lack of coordination, profuse salivation, vomiting, a deep red or purple tongue, seizure and unconsciousness. Animals that are at particular risk for heat stroke beside the breeds that were already mentioned are very old, very young, overweight, not conditioned to prolong exercise or have heart or respiratory disease. So how to treat a pet suffering from heat stroke? Move your pets into the shade or an air-conditioned area. Apply ice packs or cold towers to their head, neck, and chest or run cool, not cold, water over them. Let them drink small amounts of cool water uh, or lick ice cubes. Take them directly to a veterinarian. Now, just a note uh, regarding shaving your pets. Generally, most experts recommend against uh, shaving most pets, so there are exceptions. Veterinarians often advise against shaving cats and dogs for a simple reason. Your pet's hair isn't like yours. A pet's coat is designed by nature to keep it cool during the summer and warm in the winter.
By shaving your pet, you usually interfere with this built-in temperature regulation. Cats in particular are very good at regulating body temperature and really get no benefit from being shaved. Because cats are so much smaller relative to the exposed surface area, they are just better at getting rid of extra body heat. Cats are also almost always more mobile than dogs, so they can simply move to a shadier spot when temperatures rise. Now, if you have a dog with a very thick coat who seems to suffer from the heat, some veterinarians suggest shaving them. But resist shaving shorter-haired breeds because not only do they get no benefit from it, but they also run the risk of sunburn once shaved. What you can do in order to help your pet is brush their coat. Brushing your pet removes dead undercoat, helping air to circulate near the skin, keeping pets cooler. Also, uh, in summer months, pets can get bitten by insects and end up with moist uh, dermatitis, a skin condition, but removing dead hair by brushing helps skin stay drier. If you have the time and energy, brush daily. Well, this is it for today. Wish you and your furry friends a happy and safe summer. <laughs> Thanks for that, Zoya. Okay, so that's our show for today, folks. Thanks to the chatters. And again, a very special thank you to our guest, Richard White. The book is called Smoke Screens, The Truth About Tobacco, and it is available on Amazon.com. Uh, Richard White's webpage is smokescreens.org. So you can join us again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for another episode of the Health and Wellness Show. And also you can tune in tomorrow for the Truth Perspective. Uh, there's going to be a little high strangeness going on. You can join them uh, at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And also catch uh, Behind the Headlines Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. So have a great day, everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye, everybody.